coming up on Stu Does America. As fun as it is to watch the leftist rioters and Chaz set each other on fire, Seattle was in trouble long before the plastic barricades were set up. Former New York Mets general manager and analyst Steve Phillips talks about the upcoming baseball season, or depressing lack thereof, and we've noticed some pretty strange Amazon reviews about a certain book I mentioned earlier this week. I think you'll want to see them. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe, and while you're thinking about it, click that thumbs up button right now. Do it now. Your computer overlords will take that gesture as a vote of confidence and get this show in front of more people. It does legitimately thank, uh, help us out, so we, we do thank you for it. If you're on podcast, you can help too for free. Just rate this thing with five stars and a quick review. You know, it's great, whatever. And subscribe and share the podcast with whoever you think might want some smart analysis, stupid laughs, and only occasionally the opposite. The show is also free on Facebook and Pluto TV daily. And for all the millionaires and billionaires out there, of course, subscribe at blazetv.com slash stew. Make sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Okay, before we begin, another fat guy food review, the brand new Burger King Impossible Sandwich. It's the best thing BK has done since at least the Cheesy Top. A full and absolute A+. Stu does America. Hello, America, and of course, all of you checking the show out deep in the bowels of Chaz. Ever since the fiasco when Chaz started up, probably the most common question I've been asked was, would you like to supersize that meal? But the second most common question is, how are they letting this happen? This is a major U.S. city, and there's handing over six blocks to anarchists? How is this possible? And in most circumstances, it would be a very rational question. But honestly, not in Seattle. This happened in Seattle because this is what his Seattle has become. Local Seattle station, Como, assembled the evidence in a recent documentary, and it told a powerful story. Seattle is dying. That's not me expressing my opinion. That's the title of the documentary. And yes, that sounds bad, but it's probably better than the name of the Facebook page started by resident Richard Patton. Richard started a Facebook page called Seattle Looks Like Shits. It's not meant to be funny. It's meant to be sad. Pictures speak for themselves. Uh, I started grabbing a few photographs in the area, posting those, and and the, the, the name of the site, as I drive around, look, I just say to myself, Seattle looks like shit. We're fed up with it. I was fed up with it. That's why I started the page. Day after day, one after another, the pictures on the page from every corner of the Emerald City paint a picture of rot and filth that is being allowed to fester on the streets and in the lots and under the overpasses of a once proud city. It, it looks like a third world. I'm not heartless. Uh, but I don't see I don't see that what we're doing now is helping anybody and it hasn't gotten better. There was a time when most people's impressions of Seattle came from the TV show Frasier. The hell happened here? Well, an experiment happened, an experiment that a good chunk of the country is now asking us to expand. They didn't quite defund the police. They just stopped allowing the police to enforce almost every law. Steve Danishek has spent his whole life in Seattle. He says when misdemeanors stopped being enforced, it was the beginning of the end. And at that point, everyone got the message. It's a free-for-all down here. It's the Wild West. No laws apply. Do whatever you want. I could go down here and pee on the street or crap over there or smoke a joint. 
I, I have, no one's going to get arrested for doing that because they're not doing that. They're not arresting anyone. If I was a city council member, I might say, well, well we're overwhelmed. We've got this homeless epidemic. No, 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 no. The, we, the we city, the city council is not overwhelmed by anything. The city council are idiots. <laughs> kind of true. You kind of see the autonomous zone as now just another step down the road. Seattle has been going down for decades. It's not defunding the police. It's defanging them. And when you're dressed up like a police officer, but you can't enforce the law, you're just at a really boring, never ending costume party. And when officers were invited to anonymously express their opinions, they left with a distinct impression. They're pissed off. One officer wrote simply, yes, I am frustrated because I'm a law enforcement officer that is told not to enforce the law. It didn't used to be that way. Law enforcement officers used to be able to enforce the laws. This officer continues. In the last five years, there has been a culture shift and it started with the legislature decriminalizing felonies and dumping convicts onto the streets. And then there is this. An officer says, even if quality warrant arrests are made, the judicial system sees fit to let them out of jail within a couple of days, often the next day. Why are we risking our lives to take felony level fugitives into custody if they're just going to be released? Prosecutor's office and judges alike seem to be drinking all the Kool-Aid, causing a huge disconnect and a broken system with absolutely no teeth. Sound familiar? Remember, this is all long before Chaz was even a thought. But their comments made the whole city sound like an autonomous zone. Dirty, crime riddled, terrifying for law abiding citizens and quite honestly, sad. Scott Lindsay had a theory that a lot of this was crime was being committed by the same people over and over and over again. He found that 100 people had committed dozens and dozens of crimes each and still were consistently let out of jail anyway. Take somebody into the jail, don't give them meaningful help, and then put them right back out on the streets. We know they're gonna commit the same crimes in the same places, and our public records, our criminal justice records, really show that that's exactly what's happening. Look at the sheer volume of criminal cases. Calvin A, 68 criminal cases since 2002, repeated random assaults on random individuals. Drainan B, 54 criminal cases since 2016. Michelle C, 72 cases since 2000. And the list goes on and on. Seattle's mayor says this. It is wrong to conflate homelessness with a rise in crime. For at least 100 people, it would at the very least appear to be a factor. Of the 100 that you looked at, what percentage of them were homeless? Yeah, from our criminal justice records, 100% had indicators that they were currently homeless. And what percent showed signs of addiction? Yeah, 100% also showed signs of a substance use disorder. <laughs> Just 100%. So what happens when you have a massive homeless problem combined with a massive drug problem combined with cops who can't enforce the law? Well, eventually, Chaz happens. But before that, the criminal population of a city slowly begins to realize that mommy and daddy are no longer watching and they can get away with anything, even on camera. Do you steal for your habit? I actually just started stealing last Monday. <laughs> I started stealing and... Um, Oh my God, dude. That was one of the hardest sacrifices is to like do unrighteous things in front of my dudes. Travis, just relax. Travis, do you want to smoke? Travis, you want to smoke or a candy bar? Oh! 
But um, will you continue to do that? Oh, I'm having a blast now. It is so much fun. What, what should the system do with a guy like you? Um, I think that this system has has done uh, what any viable, um, legitimate system would, and they've really like exalted me uh, and like shown uh, deference and, and love towards me. Back the and like I don't feel like I'll ever be arrested again I haven't been in jail for like a year and three months or so you know so a change like that responding to a big change definitely shows that uh, I have conquered the criminal justice system remember the media is siding with people like that over the police he conquered the criminal justice system. Does that sound at all like Chaz to you? I mean, what's the difference? Chaz tells people in advance they can't be punished. But the years and years of experimentation with this philosophy of degrading the police force sent the same message. That message was received by insane and sick people like Travis. And it left the cops with an impossible job to show up every day, collect a paycheck and be told over and over again, you're not allowed to make things better. Well, you yourself are putting yourself in extreme danger. Como in Seattle interviewed an officer named Todd Wiebke. Uh, for years, he wrote a blog about his struggles as an officer, but with an optimistic tone. You know, if we keep pushing forward, we can turn this city around. And then... And then one day this past October, Todd Wiebke was told by one superior to impound an RV and clean up the spot. And when he did it, another superior scolded him for doing so because of new protocol. He had a belly full, and he walked into HR, and he quit. Retired, just like that. I feel like I abandoned the, the ship, that I walked away, that, and, and I did, because I couldn't do it anymore. It was just the bureaucracy built up to the point where I felt like I was no longer necessary as a police officer, that the system had a different idea of how they wanted to handle it, and I was an appendix. I needed to be gone, so I, I'm gone. Ask anyone. They'll tell you this was a good cop, the kind we want out there, the kind we need. But I will tell you that, that there is no morale. Um, there's a love for the job. He says the drugs, the camps, the theft, the rot, and the disgrace of it all don't have to destroy Seattle. They're being allowed to. Everybody's trying to do the right thing. It's just coming out wrong. Listen to these next words carefully. Let them sink in. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again that the only thing I can equate it to is we're running a concentration camp without barbed wire up to and including the medical experiment of poisoning these people with drugs. I, I don't know how else to put it. And it's infuriating. I'm curious how the left thinks this is going to work out. First, you complain about the bad cops. Then you make the life miserable for the good ones. And then the good ones leave, so all you have left are the bad cops. If you're lucky, some good officers will stick around out of a sense of duty for a while, but a human being can only take so much. Some of this just makes your city look and smell awful. And some of it looks like it's straight out of Reno 911. But unfortunately, it can get a lot worse. Police say that on July 20th of 2017, this man, Louis Arby III, 41 years old, removed the screen from a woman's window at an assisted living facility in SeaTac and crawled in. The woman inside was brutalized for an hour. She was raped and beaten 
and choked and robbed. Police say Louis Arby also urinated on the floor. Afterwards, police say he left through the same window he'd entered through. The victim was treated for bleeding on the brain, a broken nose, and other injuries. She was 71 years old. It was a shocking and disturbing crime, but perhaps we shouldn't have been all that surprised. Just four days before the rape, just 96 hours before police say he scarred one woman's life forever, Louis Arby III was arrested here, sitting next to the fountain, right outside the King County Courthouse. Police say he was selling methamphetamine. That's him in the back of the squad car after the arrest. He was booked and then released almost immediately. Our criminal justice system decided that he shouldn't spend even 24 hours in jail. This is a guy who had spent 19 years in prison in California for kidnapping and other assorted crimes. Who was the only suspect in a previous rape and torture case as well? Who by sheer luck you had in custody four days before he brutalized an elderly woman in a nursing home and you just let him walk out. This isn't the fault of the police. It's the city council. It's local leadership. It's the mayor. It's the fault of the extreme left-wing philosophy that denies who the sick and dangerous are in our society and releases them to ravage average citizens. Most importantly, this isn't just Seattle. This is a preview of what happens when the far left gets control. They take cities built by freedom and capitalism and destroy them. And they're currently trying to find their way in and around the White House. If they succeed... If we give them enough power, the worst of Seattle could be coming soon to a neighborhood near you. Who does America? Do you want to lose weight? Do you keep hearing my fat guy food reviews and saying like how I I keep eating these fast food things and then you you come in here and you talk to me about Fast Blast. Look, there's there's always room for a little indulgement. I mean, look, that's what we can do. We can indulge a little bit. But you know what? When you're on, you need to be on. That's why I like the intermittent fasting thing. Uh, Fast Blast is a great program. They put this together for for you, and they can walk you through every little step uh, uh, of it at fastblast.com. But they also make it easy with these little smoothies they have. Easy smoothies. This is a fasting. In fact, today is a fasting day for me. Uh, you know, I've had these smoothies today. It's all I've had to have. I'm full. I'm not craving food right now. It's nice and easy. And when you're done with the day, you feel a lot better, like in one day. Uh, usually they do two fasting days per week when you're trying to lose a lot of weight. And it comes off really fast when you stick to it. Um, and you can use these, uh, these awesome smoothies. They taste great. And uh, they're going to be able to uh, take you down, uh, make you f- full, and help you lose weight. I've lost eight pounds already. Uh, my friends and family members around here have been losing some serious weight as well. Fast Blast is an awesome way to do this. It's different, but it's awesome. Do your own homework. Uh, check it out, fastblast.com slash blaze. Make sure this is right for you. Get started today with fastblast.com at fastblast.com slash blaze. Use the slash blaze part because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Fastblast.com slash blaze for healthier and smaller you. Former Mets GM Steve Phillips hosts the leadoff spot every morning on Sirius XM MLB Network Radio, which is a great show. And he's a baseball insider for TSN. Steve, thanks so much for taking time and uh, coming on the program. It's been a rough few months. I need baseball back in my life. Am I going to be getting it? 
Boy, you and me both. Uh, thanks for having me. And and so, yeah, I, listen, we all need baseball right now. And look, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I would say I'm hopeful. I don't know that I want, ever want to get to where I'm optimistic because every time I've gotten optimistic, I've taken a body blow uh, <laughs> that it just seems like these negotiations go in a different direction. And, and uh, you know, somebody has some different thing. I mean, I've never seen smarter people get together in a room and walk out of the room and have completely different opinions about what was said in that mo- meeting. It's just it's unbelievable what we've experienced so far. Uh, it really is. Uh, so take me back to the end of March. Coronavirus thing is kicking in. They have they signed this deal. And if I understand it right, basically the players were to get 100 percent of a prorated salary if they play less than a full season and the owners get to set the season length. That pretty much I think I understand what what comes after that, because it gets really, really mixed up. Well, I, look, that agreement also stipulated something really important is that you're right. Prorated salaries for the players. The commissioner can assign the schedule after considering health factors uh, with regard to to economic feasibility. Now, there's language in that agreement that seems to me really clear. And I've not heard anybody from the player side ever sort of explain what it means to them. What it says is the Major League Baseball and the Players Association will discuss in good faith the economic feasibility of playing games without fans in the stands. Now, the commissioner's office belief was the prorated salaries uh, were part of an agreement that we came back under normal circumstances. That if it was contemplated we're going to come back without fans in the stands, it seemed clear to both the commissioner's office and what they believed the players was that they would further discuss how they could make that work, that it meant there was a renegotiation. I have not heard anybody from the player side explain what that clause means to them if it doesn't mean that you're going to renegotiate something about the money. Now, uh, they they seem to be ignoring that point, but ultimately it seems pretty clear that's where there seems to be the first sort of disconnect in this agreement. Yeah, and it seems like that's this is one of the worst types of negotiations, Steve, because both sides seemingly kind of have a point here and that the players did sign a contract. They signed another contract in, the, in March, and I can understand them wanting their money. On the other hand, it's blatantly obvious that these games do not have uh, fans in the stands. Something has to be renegotiated here. Both of them are coming with their sort of uh, hardline agreement uh, or, or points, and I understand them. But it doesn't feel like either one wants to give an inch, even in the middle of what we're going through. Right. I mean, you would think that that perspective would matter here, but both sides have been tone deaf throughout the process. It just seems like, you know, find a way to make a deal, find a way to get something done. And nobody seems to be willing to go in that direction until we get that. You know, they've listened to each other, but they've not heard each other. And they've not certainly listened to the fans or heard the fans and the way they feel about any of this at all either. Uh, and so it's been this battle, this back and forth. Look, this is inherent in baseball. People keep saying, well, why isn't the NFL like this? Why isn't the NBA and the NHL having these problems? And it's because there's not a partnership. In all of those other sports, there's revenue sharing. They generate revenue as partners. They split up the piece of pie based upon a formula, and there's nothing to fight about. And they can agree on things if it grows the game because they think they both benefit from it. Players have never in baseball, and the Players Association have never wanted to go down the road of revenue sharing. The, even the notion of bringing it up this year in, in the trial balloon floated, went over like a lead balloon. It blew up on, on the owners. The notion that, hey, let's do a 50-50 revenue share seems fair to me, mm. but the players are like, absolutely not. That's a salary cap to us. And so it seems to be a non-starter, but because it's us against them and there's not a partnership, it always seems to go this way. How much of this, Steve, goes to uh, a couple of years down the road when you have this big uh, negotiation that is uh, forthcoming? 
uh, where they're going to have to set longer term sort of arrangement together. Is are they playing the long game here and kind of just pushing this current crisis down the road a little bit? You know, it's funny because when the when the Major League Baseball you know thought they were going to throw up the trial balloon about a 50-50 revenue sharing split, the players' response was, "Oh no, they're trying to take advantage of the coronavirus, the pandemic, to get something in to benefit them for the the CBA at the end of the 2021 season." No, they weren't. They were trying to find a path to get back to play and get on the field. And so, I, look, I don't think that that any part of this negotiation has anything to do with the CBA. It, it means nothing. Like I, 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 To me, it's not tied to it at all. Every decision that's made now could easily be explained and written off that we're dealing with a global pandemic and, and that you made a decision because it was the right thing to do under this in this crisis. And I thought they've lost out on an opportunity. Now, it's important that they get a settlement now because at least it starts to mend some of those fences. If Rob Manford imposes a shortened season or they just don't get a deal done and we don't play at all, then I think it is catastrophic and sets up what would be a, a potential bloodbath for the CBA after the 2021 season. And that, that does seem like what it feels like their owners can just do here, right? They could just come to the table and say 48 games, 60 games, whatever it is, and say, look, you guys got to show up. The players released this statement that felt really contrived to me. Just, just tell us when and where. Um, but in reality, they have all sorts of levers to pull when it comes to safety arrangements and stuff. They can still stop this even if the owners do impose the shorter season, can they not? Well, I don't know that they can. I mean, we're far enough along that that any part of that health negotiation, I think they're pretty close to getting that part of the deal done. Uh, I think from the players' perspective, you know, the owners can implement the shortened season. And quite honestly, Dr. Fauci coming out this week and suggesting that baseball get everything done by the end of September, don't let any of it go into October, really played into Rob Manfred's hand that if he wants to implement and impose a short season, do it now. Play the 48 games, start the playoffs in September, and finish them by the end of September. And you and, and, and the fear of a grievance, I think, is easily negated because he can say, listen, I didn't make the decision. The guy in charge of the health decisions in the, in the coronavirus pandemic, Dr. Fauci, said this is what we should do. I just followed his lead. I think it protects Rob Manfred, the owners, big time. Now, I would rather negotiate. I would rather get 60, 65-game season in, play it out that way, take your chances with it. But I think that the, the fear of the grievance is what has worried the owners, and I think they're completely safe when it comes to that. Yeah, yeah i, I got to say, as a fan, Steve, I, I feel like a 48-game season sounds really interesting to do one time. I, I mean, I, I know it's never, it's never been – there's nothing like that has been done, but it, it would be an intense 48 games, wouldn't it? Well, whether it's 48 games or 60 games or 72 games or 70 games, wherever the the, the sides are on this, it's going to be a sprint, not a marathon. And it's a completely different type of baseball uh, doing this than it would be playing the 162-game season. Think about it this way, that, that after 60 games last year, the Washington Nationals would not have made the playoffs. They went on to win the World Series. They would not have made the playoffs in a 60-game sprint because they got off to that really slow start. So the team that won it all was able to make up ground after the slow start because the season was a marathon last year. This is a sprint. So it's not going to be the best teams. It's going to be the hottest teams that win. And so you're going to get some surprises, which would be fun. I look at the Blue Jays. I look at the White Sox. I look at the Padres with good young teams that aren't quite ready to make the adjustments in season and a regular 162 game season to win. They could, they could make the playoffs under this format because they're just young enough to not know any better. And by the time they figure out that they shouldn't be doing this, the season could be 
coming to an end, and it could really make for what could be a shootout, which could be a lot of fun. Well, I am glad you brought up America's team, the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm a big Blue Jays fan. I am very excited about this team. Guerrero, Bichette, Guriel Jr., Biggio. Uh, I love Teoscar Hernandez as well. This offense, at least, I mean, uh, this could be a powerhouse for years and years to come. Yeah, they're really exciting. And, and look, they've upgraded the pitching uh, to a degree. Uh, and, you know, they're not going to outpitch anybody, but they're going to be much more competitive. Nate Pearson, the top prospect, probably doesn't get a crack at the big leagues this year unless maybe they're making a run and they decide, let's go ahead and, and give them a shot at it, a taste for it. Uh, but they've got his big arm coming. Now, the draft, they looked for pitching, but the, the kid Austin Martin from Vanderbilt sort of fell into their lap, yeah. and he is going to be a star, and they're going to look at him as a center fielder of the future. They're a fun team. They're a really, really fun team with personal personalities uh, and talent and ability. They've got power. They've got speed. Uh, They're going to be a force to be reckoned with over the next several years. Okay, last one for you. Uh, When it comes to the Blue Jays in particular, you've got a two-week quarantine uh, in in Canada that that could be an issue if you're trying to bounce back and forth across that border. Do they have any idea how they're going to handle that? That's not a baseball issue. That's an international borders issue. Right. So that that is that's an important factor. And, and so and I think that right now, I don't think it would be lifted until July 21st, maybe. And that's after the regular season would begin if the if the proposals that are out there July 19th start uh, do actually come into play. The other challenge for the Blue Jays is they just shut down their Dunedin facility with a positive test of a player. There were a player showing symptoms of coronavirus who had been hanging out with players from the Phillies organization, five of them who tested positive uh, today as well with coronavirus. And so it seems like Dunedin is off for the Blue Jays. Toronto probably isn't the location out of the start, and it may be that they have to focus on Buffalo or maybe sharing a major league facility with another team at the start of the year. So they may be vagabonds to start the season a little bit because I think you're right. The quarantine factor and the rules and restrictions in Canada right now make it prohibitive for teams to come in and play there. This is going to be a wild year. Steve Phillips, one of the best around uh, MLB Network Radio, leadoff spot, as well as TSN. Thanks so much for taking the time and, and, and hopefully bringing America back to normalcy just a little bit. Thanks, Steve. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Back in a second. Have you noticed how a lot of these controversies that come around have been bubbling up before? Like, I remember talking about that a few years ago, and all of a sudden it's back again. We've been noticing that, too. So we decided to kind of look back uh, and, and come up with a new segment called We Already Told You That. We've been talking about this for a while. We've already investigated that. We've already shown that to be true or false. One of the latest ones is the controversy over the Washington Redskins name. And once again, I I feel like we've gone down this road so many times. We're told that this is the most offensive thing in American history. And with Aunt Jemima going away and, and cops are going away, the Washington Redskins have to be next, right? Well, we look back at the real history of the name Washington Redskins, and I got to tell you, it's a lot different than you have been told in the media. And, you know, I have to say, we already told you that. Many people have offered up explanations of why Redskins would be disparaging to Native Americans, like Esquire magazine. They tweeted this out. If new, the true origin of Redskins, you'd want the name changed too. If new. I'm offended. I'm offended by Esquire's poor sentence construction. 
Esquire proceeds to point out, the fact remains that to many Native Americans, the term redskin has long meant the act of our ancestors' scalps being collected for bounty. Is this true? It's time to get antisocial. Now, the problem with Esquire's history of the word redskin is that it's lacking in sources. It's largely a personal account from one of their writers who is Native American. The writer offers up one historical account from an excerpt from a Minnesota newspaper in 1863. It reads, The state reward for dead Indians has been increased to $200 for every red skin sent to purgatory. Yes, this is horrifying and truly unbelievable that it actually happened in this country. But is it really the origin of the word? In response to the cancellation of the Washington Redskins trademarks the first time in 1999, Eves Goddard, a senior linguist in the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian Institution, produced an intensively researched piece called I Am a Redskin, The Adoption of a Native American Expression. Goddard states the origin of the word is entirely benign and reflects more positive aspects of relations between Indians and whites. He cites many, many examples, but here are a couple that'll stand out. A Chickasaw chief meeting with an English commissioner for Indian affairs at a Savannah town referred to white people and red people. This use of red was soon adopted in both French and English and was conventional by the 1750s. Although Europeans sometimes use such expressions among themselves, however, this was originally and particularly a Native American usage. It's interesting, particularly Native American usage. Not convinced? Here's another example. I shall be pleased to have you come to speak to me yourself, said one statement attributed to a chief named Mosquito. And if any redskins do you harm, I shall be able to look out for you, even at the peril of my life. Native Americans obviously didn't find the term disparaging as that's the way they characterized themselves. And you'll note by the dates, it's over a hundred years before the example from the Esquire writer. The Washington Redskins was not named to be disparaging either. In 1933, the team's name was changed from the Boston Braves. Think about this for a second. They were named the Boston Braves. They were obviously trying to honor Native Americans. The problem was there was a baseball team with the same name. They chose to change it to the Boston Redskins to honor four players and the head coach who were Native Americans that year. Did the franchise suddenly do a crazy 180 and go from Indian love to Indian hate in 1933 in an attempt to racially slur their own coach? The Esquire writer attempts to make the case that regardless of how bad the name began or how wonderful the name began, words change meaning over time. While that is clearly true, the evolution of the word redskin has caused it today to be a football team. Let me state this as clearly as possible. I have never in my entire life ever heard anyone use the term redskins in a negative way towards Native Americans. Never, not one single time. Think about what the Esquire writer wants you to do here. We know the origin of the word redskin is happy back in 1750. We know the origin of the franchise is happy in 1933. We know today nobody uses it in a negative way towards Native Americans. It's happy today in 2014. But we found an article from 1863 where it was sad. So please, we just need you to focus on this and ignore this and ignore this and ignore this and ignore everything else all the way around all of these. Come on.
I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this. The author spends most of the article talking about how he lived in Oklahoma, a term that actually means red people. Yet he didn't seem too concerned with changing the name of the state. When the Redskins' trademarks were canceled in 1999, the court eventually found that the ruling was not supported by substantial evidence, as they will probably find again this time. Why? Because the majority of people like the name. The last couple of polls show between 70 and 80% of people want to keep the name. The most recent poll of Native Americans showed that 90% did not consider the term offensive. Now look, that poll is about 10 years old. And surely, with all the controversy, that number has probably come down a little bit. But this is the most important issue. If you need constant media pressure, politicians, and activist groups to convince you that something is offensive, it's not offensive. I'm joined now by Dan Andros. He's the managing editor of Faithwire, which you should be checking out daily at faithwire.com. And also their YouTube page is filled with all sorts of great stuff. Uh, you go to uh, you know, subscribe to that, too. Why not? You're there already. Let's do it. Uh, Dan, uh, have you considered starting a suburban Philadelphia autonomous zone yet or SPAS, if you will? <laughs> yeah, why not? It would be great. We can do whatever we want. It'd be so fun. A utopia. <laughs> it always works out that way. Uh, we just did this thing on the history of the Washington Redskins, which I think is very defensible uh, when you actually look at it in context. You're a Redskins fan. Do you think they're going to fold on this name like seemingly every other company is, or will they, will they stand strong? Well, Dan Snyder has been uh, bullish on this in the past, and he said, you know, in so many words, he will not change the name. And uh, they've there's been flare-ups over the years. You know, as a Redskin fan myself, uh, I've had to see those and deal with those over the years where the pressure has been on, and Snyder has held firm on those. So, but we're this is a different time now. <laughs> I mean, you know, everything's being considered. Everything's on the chopping block. So if they if they go down, uh, now would be the time. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Let's go over to another company, which I don't understand at all. Uh, Chick-fil-A, which seemed to have the backbone of steel for a while there, basically going all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, they want to defend their, their rights to, to their opinions, and it goes against uh, the narrative. It goes against the narrative. Seemingly in the last year or so, things have changed. Is that your take on it? Well, yeah, they, they certainly raised some eyebrows and, and angered a lot of their sort of loyal customers who felt like what you said, that they were being uh, strong and standing up to mobs who were trying to call Christianity hateful uh, because of their views on marriage and traditional marriage. And uh, Chick-fil-A had stood firm for quite some time until uh, I guess it was last year. Uh, at some point late last year, they started, uh, they they announced that they were changing their charitable giving and they sort of uh, you know, um, parted ways with the Salvation Army and took a dig at them, sort of saying, like, hey, we we're going to change where we're, we're giving our, our money and Salvation Army was upset. Um, but it sure looked like a move that was pandering to the LGBT uh, activist movement in some of the quotes that um, Chick-fil-A executives gave. It sure seemed like they were concerned about their image. This was after a place in the UK that they had, they were trying to expand in the UK and then that got banned because you know, from the mall or whatever they were trying to go into because of activists complaining. So they decided to make that move and change. Uh, so that was kind of what started it. 
started them down this road. I, I guess I'm most confused by the order of events. We've seen company after company after company flop and fall over against their principles over and over and over again. Chick-fil-A seemed to be the opposite. I mean, I remember the boycott. Remember when they were being boycotted, everyone went to Chick-fil-A and supported them in this big way. People know they're closed on Sunday. They've made a stand uh, on the side of, of faith. Um, and the Salvation Army thing was, was, I think, very strange the way they went about it. And then there was this, this recent uh, activity that went on with, with, the, with Dan Cathy. Can you, can you walk us through that scenario? It was, it was a little odd. Yeah, well, he was doing a uh, conversation on race with uh, Louis Giglio, who's a pastor, and Lecrae, who's a popular Christian uh, rapper. And so they were having this conversation. And of course, it's fine to have a conversation on race and, and try to you know, combat racism. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But he seemed to take it a step further. And he told a story about how he bought his employees all. He bought them all these you know, brushes to shine shoes with. And he tells this story about uh, a person in Texas who felt so uh, guilty over the racism that still occurs in America today that he went over and shined the shoes of an elderly African-American man in their church congregation. And so he uses that story to encourage other people to shine shoes. He gets up off the couch and says, you know, I think it's time for some action here, not just words. And he starts shining Lecrae's shoes, but, uh, and, and obviously indicative of Jesus washing of the feet. And uh, the difference here though, is he associated that act, not with an act of service and an act of love, but he said, uh, we should, um, here, I want to, I want to read it so I don't mess it up, but he said an expression, um, any expressions of a contrite heart, a, of a sense of humility, a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment, but yet with an apologetic heart, I think is what our world needs to hear. So this this idea of shame and embarrassment uh, and guilt and having to repent of these racist acts, uh, that's where it seems to be uh, raising a lot of eyebrows and people kind of scratching their heads because uh, for, for a lot of people, they think they're not the problem with racism. Uh, they haven't overtly been racist to people or have a habit of being racist. And so mm. he's telling them, uh, you know, to repent and to feel shame and embarrassment. And a lot of people are like, for what? <laughs> right. That's, I what about 30 seconds left here, Dan. But that's where I keep coming back to. I feel bad for bad things that have happened to other people. I don't want those things to happen. But I am not responsible for things I was not alive for. I'm not responsible for the killing of George Floyd. I can't apologize for things I am not responsible for. I'm an individual. I'm not the collective. I'm not the white race. I am my, oh, I was going to say Stu. That's actually not my real name. But I am one person, and that's all I can do. <laughs> and I, I feel like there's this, there's this thrusting of almost a collective salvation vibe here. And I, I don't want to go down that road. No, and I think Vadi Bakum said it best on your network this week, and uh, that people just look at things in two different ways. There's the group that looks at America as having a systemic problem with racism and that everyone's inherently racist. And then there's the other side who looks at individuals and the individual action and the individual heart. Mm. Dan Andros, a managing editor of FaithWire. Be sure to check out FaithWire.com and their associated YouTube page, even though he is a Redskins fan. We're back in a second.
you know, Lawrence, uh, I have never, as you probably know, on many, many shows um, since I endorsed uh, the vice president on that joyful night in Dallas, I've never commented on this process at all. Mm -hmm. um, but let me tell you this, after uh -oh. uh, what I've seen in my state, what I've seen across the country, uh, this is a historic moment. Oh. And America must seize on this moment. Okay. And I truly believe, uh, as I actually told the vice president last night uh, when I called him, uh, that I think this is a moment uh, to put a woman of color on that ticket. And there are mm. so many incredibly qualified women. Um, but if you want to heal this nation right now, oh, yeah. my party, yes, but our nation, uh, this is sure— a, hell of a way to do it. Um, mm. And that's just what I think after Powerful. being through this in my state. Oh, yes, that's what she thought. It had nothing to do with her having absolutely no chance of getting the nomination. Definitely not that. It definitely was not at all that. Look, when the thing came out about Klobuchar, who had excused and, and, uh, and overlooked the, uh, the transgressions of the cop that killed George Floyd, her chances to win that nomination were done. I mean, we all knew that. Right. She knew it. We all knew it. Uh, and she was probably told, hey, you're not winning this. Uh, you want a way to step out of it? You want to do something uh, fancy? Um, maybe you can uh, start talking about uh, it was your choice. It was your choice to do this. I think that's what happened. Uh, Klobuchar may have actually been a halfway decent candidate at one time, but, she, you know, her chances were gone. A um, couple of other nominees. Kamala Harris is leading. I have the, uh, the predicted right now. 55% Kamala Harris. I don't I don't see the Harris thing. She's a prosecutor. Now, she'll probably she may very well get it. She's the overwhelming favorite. There's usually a reason for that. I'm predicted. Um, uh, that's a market, by the way, where you're training uh, these things. Fifty five percent Kamala Harris, 18 percent Val Demings, which I just seems unlikely to me. Susan Rice. Really? They're going to bring Susan Rice in. Eleven percent. Elizabeth Warren, six percent. I think they out, they will go with a POC here, though. Elizabeth Warren counts Native American. And I don't know my, my dark horse pick here. Tammy Duckworth. I don't know. Military veteran has a major injury. Uh, she's uh, she's a senator. Was in the House before. People don't know her all that well. She's a POC, which makes her acceptable in our world. Um, let me get to one other thing here before we leave. Um, earlier this week, and I want to address this. Uh, I spoke about a book uh, that uh, a guy had written. He uh, has like a media matters type organization in uh, London, and um, I informed you that Amazon allows people to rate books that they have read. Um, you have to read the book to be able to review it. And luckily, some of you had, I, I, I assume this is maybe people who listened, because the, the book had a bunch of reviews before. Most of them were five stars. It just didn't do well in the last week. Uh, this one, uh, okay, I guess, whatever. One star. After seeing a glowing review of this book on Stu Does America, I had high hopes. What a colossal waste of time. Terrible. Stu Does America is still okay, I guess. Whatever. Or this one, uh, painful and pedantic. Um, what a waste of time and money. I wish I sat on a tack. That doesn't sound comfortable. Only one star. And this one, um, my eyes won't stop bleeding. I will never trust Stu's book recommendations again. This is a thousand times worse than any movie Beck recommends. One star. Uh, really, the rating has dropped considerably because he only had a few reviews. Nobody read this book before this week. Thank, thank, thankfully, you guys were able to get the book, read it, and review it all in the same week. We'll keep an eye out just in case there's any new reviews posted. But I, I was pretty impressed at all the reading that happens in this audience. I'm sorry he didn't like the recommendation. 
I thought it was pretty good. Uh, you can go to blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew. Save 10 bucks on your subscription. We'd love for you to do that. Or go to andrewcuomoisawful.com and pick up your Andrew Cuomo is Awful wear. We'll see you next week.